keep the bear hugs till after the service, please. Uh, my name is Tim Anderson. I'm the director of, of youth and outreach here. And um, I'm feeling a lot like the guy in the video. And no Rob Scott, no Steve Schmidt. I'm not talking about LeBron James. I'm feeling like the other guy who is doing this. Uh, most Sundays, if you're new here, I'm back with the kids. And so there's probably a handful of you that have no idea who I am. And that's okay. Um, I'm excited to share with you today because I feel like God has something for us today. And when the opportunity presents itself for me to share, I want to make the most of it. I want to hit that half-court shot for you this morning. And as we dive in, though, I want to mention two things that are crucial to lay it up. And the first one is this. Uh, This text is tough. Pastor Chris picked two great Sundays to leave. Pastor Chris, I know you're podcasting this tomorrow morning. Thank you for that. This is challenging, okay? And I just want to—I just want to set that um, set that up now. And I also want to say that I approach it with humility, and that I'm guilty as charged, okay? I'm guilty as charged. And so, as I challenge you this morning, it's coming from my uh, being challenged and convicted myself. Second thing is this: I'm going to leave you today with two questions to wrestle with and to bring home. Uh, if you read through um, the life of Jesus and the Gospels, you'll notice that oftentimes Jesus was very direct. He was very specific. Do this or do that. And on Sunday morning, oftentimes we'll do that. We will leave you with something very specific to practice in your own life. However, if you read through Jesus' life and the Gospels, you'll notice that a lot of times Jesus would just ask a question, Right? He would share a story, he would share a parable, and then he wouldn't say anything else, and he would just let you sit in that and wrestle with it and figure out the implications for you and your own life and your own faith and your own thinking. So this morning, what I'm going to be doing as we get to the application is I'm going to be leaving you two questions for you to think about. Does that sound good? Can we do that? Okay. Let's quick pray again um, as we dive in. God, we want to see you today. That's it. We want to see you and know you more. So help us to do that. God, open our hearts um, to see you more clearly today. Uh, We love you, and thank you for loving us too. Amen. So in our second week here uh, of our Lent series, and we're going through the book of Luke. And if you were here last week, um, Luke came out with a very specific and very simple purpose and premise. And it actually comes from the first few verses of his book. He says this, He says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Luke went out to write a careful account for this guy. Why? Because there were rumors going around everywhere about who Jesus was. Everybody had their own opinion. Everybody had their own perspective. And Luke comes and he investigates everything. And he wants Theophilus to know and to know the truth of who Jesus was and what he did. And you fast forward 2,000 later, there are a lot of people who have a lot of opinions of who Jesus is and what he did. And you fast forward, Luke wrote this book so we can be certain of the truth of who Jesus is and what he did. So what happens in Luke 4, as we're going to dive in soon, 
when you have this Jesus guy, and Luke, Luke mentions that there were praises following him everywhere he went. Jesus visits his hometown. And these same people that received him so well initially, literally within a matter of minutes, want to push him off a cliff. What happened? Plant in the back of your mind, I think a lot of it had to do with politics and identity. Plant that there. Before we dive into the text, um, you didn't know this, but you're going to get a free a history lesson this morning too. This is so great. You didn't know it, and even some literature. We'll get to that. But there's a place for you to write this in your notes. It's simple, it's sweet, it's short, but it's so important. Context matters. My text messages get misinterpreted five minutes after I send them. Ask my wife about that. She'll tell you all about it. This was written 2,000 years ago. So we are going to miss some big things if we don't first take a step back and try to figure out what's going on at this time that Luke is writing in. Once we get that, that paints a better picture, adds clarity to what happens in this story. And there are two, two forces. There are a lot of things that we could unpack but there are two big ones that we first need to understand today. The first is this. Here comes your history lesson, the forces of Rome. I was a history teacher before I, I came on board here. I love history. And in my focus of study, ancient Roman civilization was my thing. I loved it. It fascinated me. And Rome, in this text, is the new superpower. Okay? For the past two to three hundred years, they have been growing and growing and growing in power. But they, had a, they were a republic. They had an intricate system of checks and balances to make sure no one person could have too much power. That all changed with a guy by Julius Caesar. Many of you have probably heard of him before. Beware the Ides of March. There's your literature lesson for the day. Beware the Ides of March. Julius Caesar comes. He's a military hero. He comes triumphantly back from war. And he says, I am dictator from now moving forward. And his power and his throne had no equals. No equals. His empire was huge. And history suggests that he allowed people to think he was God. People in his empire thought he was divine, that he was a God behind human clothing. Now that type of thinking oftentimes doesn't sit well with other people. And as you know the story, leaders plot against him. They later kill him. A civil war breaks out. Long story short... His adopted son takes the throne. And he goes by the name of Augustus, which means, which means majestic. Majestic Octavian Caesar. And majestic Octavian Caesar had a gospel. He had a good news that he would send out to the four corners of his empire. And his gospel was simple. Pay your taxes, keep the peace, and I will protect you, and I will provide for you. Simple. That was his gospel. That was his good news that he sent out to the four corners of the empire. And not only that, he believed his dad was God. He believed it. And so during the time of Jesus' childhood and teenage years, if you were asked in the Roman Empire, who is the son of God? The right answer, the politically correct answer, the answer that wouldn't get you killed in a creative Roman way, was Caesar. He was Octavian. Keep that in the back of your mind. The other force that we need to first understand before I dive into the text is that of the Jewish forces. Now, the Jewish people, as far back as we can trace their story through Scripture, 
they believed that their story was going somewhere. That it had a goal in mind. And not only did it have a goal in mind, that they were actors within this story. They had a crucial part to play that was going to get them from there to there. And these stories were complex. They were dense with detail and they were saturated in hope. And out of all the stories they told, from the very beginning, there was one central message of hope. And that was found in the story of the Exodus. If you're familiar with that story, or unfamiliar with it, this is a story where God calls this guy named Moses, who later reluctantly decides to be on the same page with God, to lead the people out of Egyptian slavery through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. This is a, this is a story of God taking charge, of God rescuing his people. And if you fast forward now, to the time of Jesus, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, you will have found the Jewish people burnt out and tired and exhausted because when they got the promised land, it didn't, it didn't end there. It didn't go so well. They started um, worshiping other gods, turning their back on God, fighting and complaining, and they were enslaved and they were exiled. And so they, you find the Jewish people, as we enter this text, done done with Rome. They were done with Caesar. Uh, There was this historian in the first century named Josephus. And he had a name for this ready and waiting movement. He called it a philosophy. He said the Jewish people have a philosophy that's ingrained in them that they believe that God is going to come back again. And they're clinging to this hope. Because they're done with Rome and they're done with Caesar and they're done with the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all these other groups of people. They're waiting for God to come back and for God to become king and for God to rescue their people again. They were ready and they were waiting. So as we dive into this text, two things we need to know. We need to be aware of of Roman Caesar setting itself up as God, promising good things to its people. And we have the Jewish people saying, I'm done with you. I'm done with you. All you are is another long list of tyrant kings who's full of empty promises. And we're ready for God to come back. So keep that in mind. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Luke chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles here, we we would love to send you home with with one free of charge on us. And those can be um, found kind of as you leave um, here this morning. Feel free to take one as you go. What we're going to be doing here is we're going to be going through Luke 4, starting with verse 14. And we're going to be unpacking this in a few different chunks. And kind of unpacking what Luke is saying in them. So we're going to start here in verse 14, and we're going to go through 16. Follow with me here on the screens. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, He went, as usual, to the synagogues on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. Now we need to take a 20-second time out, pause there, and notice what Luke is saying. Luke says right there, he taught regularly in the synagogues. This was Jesus' regular practice. He did this frequently. He did this all the time. And yet, Luke is deciding to write about this instance. That signifies something of importance. He is setting the stage up for something big, and we can't miss what he's doing. Let's move on. Verses 17 through 19. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. 
And this comes from um, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Forgiveness is at the very heart of this message. But it's not the type of individual forgiveness for someone who's been uh, physically or emotionally crippled. This is a type of corporate, corporate forgiveness. And it would have tapped in, going back to the stories that the Jewish people would, would tell. This would have tapped into this ancient concept of jubilee. And jubilee was a Sabbath of Sabbaths, sabbatical of sabbaticals that most suggest happened every 49 years, some say 50 but it was this time where debts would be forgiven, property given back to its rightful owner. Slaves would be set free. This, was, this resulted in a tremendous celebration where everything that crippled human life was forgiven and set free and liberated. And Jesus hears, as, he, as, as they heard him speak this, that's what would have come to mind. And they would have been eager to know exactly how these great prophecies would be fulfilled. What's going to happen? When's this going to happen? When are we going to be set free? We're ready. We're waiting. God, come back. And Luke picks up on this anticipation. Find out what, uh, see what he writes here in verse 20. He says, Jesus rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. All eyes looked at Jesus intently. They were ready. They were engaged. They were hanging on every word of Jesus. They were ready for God to take charge again for the Jubilee to come. But who, but how, but when? And Jesus gives his answer. They're waiting. And here's what he says. Verse 21. Then began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very Day, this release you've been so anxiously awaiting, this forgiveness, this liberation for God to take charge. This is Luke. This is Jesus going public. And this is Luke saying of Jesus, Jesus saying, I'm here. This time has come. I have come to launch God's kingdom now, today. And this is a part in the story where you might think everything's good, right? You know, this is kind of where Jesus and his hearers get on the horse. Get on horses, right? And they're right off in the sunset like the movies. That's what happens, right? Yeah. This is where Luke ends the story with, and they lived happily ever after. It can make sense after you hear that, right? Everything's good. They're waiting something. They're waiting for Jesus to come back. Jesus comes back and says, yep, time has started. It's here. It's now. If you've had a relationship with Jesus or you've read through the Gospels, you know that you can't put Jesus in a box. You can't do it. As soon as you put him into a corner, he'll put you in one. And he'll throw things upside down on you. And that's what Jesus does here. We're going to pack the last eight verses here, beginning in verse 22. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said, you will undoubtedly quote me as pro proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own town. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. 
Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed straight through the crowd and went on his way. Now, you could take these eight verses and you could pack, unpack them with a whole sermon series. But for the sake of this morning, I want to focus on this guy named Naaman, the Syrian, and Jesus' reference to him. Again, this plays back into the stories that the Jewish people would tell. And in this story that they would tell, Naaman, this comes from the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was the enemy. He was not only the enemy, he was the face of the enemy. He was the commander of the army who was waging war with Israel. But he also had leprosy. And in this story, God's good news, God's gospel, God's forgiveness, God's healing crossed into enemy camp. Crossed into enemy territory and forgave and brought healing to Naaman the Syrian. And in this text, this is Jesus saying, my father's good news, it's for them too. And it's at this time when you bring in the context and you bring in the forces that are happening at this time, you can start to understand what happens next. You can understand that they're, they're here thinking, wait, 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 hold on, Jesus. You're saying the good news, that hope, that forgiveness, it's, it's for it's for them, the foreigners, the outsiders, the enemies, the wrong people. It's for Rome. It's for Caesar. Are you kidding me? Politics, to put, bring our guards down, politics is a fancy word that simply means, what are my perspectives of authority and power over human affairs? Who's in charge? And how is he, she, or they going to run things? And what's my role in it. That's what politics is. And in this message and in this text, Jesus' hearers were on the right, they, had, they were on the right start in wanting and desiring the day for God to take charge. They were right there. But their politics were threatened. The, the Jesus that they wanted and the Jesus that they expected was not the real Jesus. And somewhere along the line, in all these stories that they would share of God and God coming back, they misplaced their identity because they wanted and expected Jesus, the mighty, the mighty warrior. And they wanted and expected Jesus, the ruthless dictator. And they wanted and expected Jesus, the commander-in-chief. And they wanted and expected Jesus to do away with Rome, to elevate us, bring them down. That's what God came to do. And Jesus came to show in this, that's not how it is. That's not how my Father's kingdom is going to be. My good news, my forgiveness, it's for you and it's for them too. But they didn't get that. And it forced them to do the only thing they felt like they could do. And push him, try to push him off the cliff and kill him. That realization <clears throat> has me thinking a lot. 
we're moving into our application here, and this is one of the first questions that I want to send you home with this morning. Does your Jesus align with the Jesus of the Bible? Does your Jesus align with the Jesus of the Bible? Because if I answer that question honestly for myself, and honestly with you, like I mentioned before, I am guilty as charged. I'm guilty. It's, it, there's been way misalignments. I don't know if that's a word, but I made it a word. In my faith journey. I think back to um, after 9-11 was one time where I, I wanted Jesus, the military uh, mighty warrior too. I wanted Jesus to come back to do that because manifest destiny, right? We're God's chosen nation now. Everybody else, they're, they're like Rome. Rome might not be my enemy, but it's Al-Qaeda. And Caesar might not be my enemy, but it's Saddam Hussein or Osama bin Laden. And I felt God's going to raise us up, and he's going to do away with those people. Because that's what God came to do. Elevate us. Put them down. And my Jesus has been a genie in my life. There's cancer in my family. There's addiction in my family. There's divorce in my family. There's brokenness everywhere. And I figured I can just throw my requests up to God. To Jesus. He's going to hear them and he's going to heal them. He's going to grant my wishes, right? And not only was he a genie, I got corrected at this at the nine o'clock hour. This, he was that Star Trek deflector shield. Am I right on that? Deflector shield? Where once those things were out of my life, he would keep them from ever coming back in. Right? I was in my bubble and that's what Jesus would do. And speaking of bubbles, I lived in one because my Jesus was really safe. And he was really comfortable because I told myself, Jesus wants me happy. That's it. So I did what I wanted, when I wanted. My life was safe. My life was comfortable. And then I realized something. What do I need Jesus for anyway? If that's how I'm living my life, if there's no need for faith, why? What good, what need is there for Jesus in my life? And my Jesus was easy going. Here's the deal. I put in my time on Sundays. And youth group, what, what? I put my time in on Wednesdays. And I would say my meals before I went to bed, or before I ate. And I would pray to him, usually fall asleep on him, before um, I would sleep. And then I realized, at the end of the week, my life didn't look much different than anybody else. And my Jesus was rich. He has everything, right? I mean, Jesus has everything. So what on earth could I, poor college kid, owning, uh, paying Bethel a good chunk of change, still, <laughs> what could I possibly give him anyway? True generosity was a foreign concept to me. And my Jesus was legalistic. He had all these rules over here. But here's a really cool thing about my Jesus. He had this cool thing called grace. I love Jesus' grace because what I would do is I would pick all the ones that I could follow. And I would follow them and I would feel really, really good about myself. And then what I would do is I would choose to ignore the other ones. Like the radical giving, like loving your neighbor like yourself. Jesus possibly couldn't have met that, right? Because I love myself a lot, and there's no way I can love other people like I love myself. You laugh, but that's the truth. Think about that. You know? That's, that was my Jesus. 
And that was my old politics. That was my own identity. And I have to fight those politics every single day. That thinking. And as I started to read and really dive into Scripture, and as I started to surround myself with really broken people, but people who really were trying to find Jesus, I made my own realization, like they did in this passage. My Jesus wasn't aligned with the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus I wanted and expected wasn't the real Jesus. And that is a tough pill to swallow. Because you place your identity in that. You place your life around that. And for you to realize, you're misaligned. You've misplaced your identity. That's a dangerous place, a difficult place, and a difficult thing to realize. Now that I can start to see why they wanted to kill him. So then I started to read through for this sermon message who Jesus of the Bible is. What are some of the things that he was and is? And I started to notice that Jesus hung out with the uncool kids. That's what Jesus did. That was his gang, his posse. It was the the, um, socially outcast, the poor, the sick. Luke records Jesus saying, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. The Jesus of the Bible is about peace all of the time. So much so that Luke records Jesus saying this crazy thing. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And Jesus wasn't too concerned about safe and comfortable. What, what is safe and comfortable about that? What's safe and comfortable about that? And Luke records Jesus saying, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take that up every single day and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Don't get me wrong. Jesus came to rule. He is king. But in his upside-down kingdom, in his upside-down politics, in his upside-down way of doing things, Luke records Jesus saying, As king, I have not come to be served, but to serve. Luke records Jesus saying something like this, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leaders as the one who serves. And Jesus had everything. He had it all. And yet he asks us to give up everything and lay it at the feet of the cross. Luke records this one guy, Jesus saying, he, he clung very closely to his money. He says, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and then you will have treasures in heaven. Does your Jesus look like that? Does your Jesus look like that? And your answers might be all over the board. There's a, there's a lot of people in here, and we're going to come with our own baggage and our own politics and our own identity. But my second question for you is this. Are you still in? Are you still in? Are you still committed to that Jesus and to that Jesus? Some of you here this morning might be saying, are you crazy? When when you actually think about it and and you see who Jesus is, you might be thinking, why on earth would I buy into that? That seems crazy. And you're right. It is. And I want to close on on a a story this morning. 
Five years ago, I had the opportunity to serve alongside a ministry doing work in the AIDS-stricken townships of Cape Town, South Africa. It was a trip that in many ways changed my life and my perspectives on a lot of things. And this story comes from this place and from this ministry. So there's a chaplain. It was his job to go to the local hospitals. And he would make um, rounds in the maternity wards. And he'd be praying for the mothers and their kids. And in, in South African hospitals, or at least in Cape Town, what you would see outside of every door was the name of the mom. And then underneath the name of the mom was the name of the baby. So you know who you're going in to see. And you know the names. And as he was approaching to enter one door, he saw that the um, name of the baby was Alukat Petuna, which means no hope. Can you imagine for one minute naming your child no hope? Banging on the door, time to get up, no hope. Time for school. Time to eat, no hope. Time to brush your teeth, no hope. How is your day, no hope? And the chaplain is confused. Why? Is this the case? And so as he opens the door, he meets a 14-year-old mother holding her baby girl. And, and, and almost angry and very much confused, he said to the mom, the teenage 14-year-old mom, why would you name your child no hope? And she said this. She told this story of how she had two family members still alive, her mom and her auntie, and she lived with her mom when her mom died of HIV-AIDS. So she moved in with her auntie. Her auntie died of HIV-AIDS. So now she's left with no family and nowhere to go. And luckily this um, neighbor, well, luckily, this neighbor family takes her in. She didn't know him very well. They didn't know her, but they took her in. And there was a 16-year-old son in this house. And he told her, if you want to stay here, you're going to pay me rent by giving me sex. So she paid rent. And soon enough, she discovered that she was HIV positive and she was pregnant. And at the discovery that these things were happening and the family discovering that, they kicked her out. They said, how dare you bring HIV into this house? They kicked her out. Now she has nowhere to go again. And there is this extremely, 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 extremely poor woman who had two kids down the block, she lived in a 10-foot by 10-foot shack with one double bed. She said, come on in. So now there's four people sleeping on this double bed. And the mother of two says, you can stay here as long um, until you have your baby. Once your baby is born, you're going to have to find a new place to go because there's just not room for you here. Time comes for the baby to be born she goes into the hospital, and the baby comes out of the womb with an extremely rare condition and advanced stages of AIDS. And this woman looked at the chaplain, this woman, this teenager looks at this chaplain and says, you want to know why I have no hope? This is why I have no hope. The chaplain at this time is devastated, right? But he understands, this is my God-given opportunity to show her and her baby Jesus. And I can't miss this opportunity. And so he gets on the phone right away, calls the director of the ministry, explains the situation, says, what do we do? 
we got to do something. So they start calling around their church family, and the church family opens up their doors to this teenage and this baby. And they start teaching her how to um, provide for herself. They start teaching her how to make jewelry. And over like two months, she's actually able to make enough profit where she can rent her own home. Nothing big, nothing fancy, but it's more than she's ever had. Three months in, she goes back to the ministry and she said this. She said, you have shown me Jesus. Now help me find him so he can be mine too. Three months after that, she comes back in again and she says, I want you, please take me to the Department of Home Affairs. I said, why do you want to go there? She said, I want to change my baby's name. I said, what do you want to, what do you want to call your baby? I said, I want to call her Loletta, which means my Lord is my hope. Jesus, this Jesus, doesn't give us a hall pass from hardship. He doesn't guarantee or promise us a life free from pain and brokenness. And the truth is, it's the opposite. He invites us, he beckons us, he challenges us to press into it. Because as we press into the hardships and the pain and the brokenness, we find Jesus. And as we find Jesus, we find this thing called hope. And this hope is contagious and this hope is transforming. And as we press into the hardship and the pain and the brokenness, we find Jesus. And as we find Jesus, we find this thing called joy in the midst, in the thick of that hardship. And that joy is contagious and that joy is transforming And as we press into hardship and pain and brokenness, we find Jesus. And as we find Jesus, we find this peace that surpasses all understanding. And that peace is contagious. And that peace is transforming. We are the light of the world. And that's not me saying that. That's Jesus saying that. We are the light of the world. And this world needs us. This world needs me. This world needs you. This world needs more people who can let go of their own identities and whatever Jesus they've created him to be. The world needs more people who are more aligned with the Jesus of the Bible and the Jesus of the cross. And the question for you as you leave this morning is are you still in? Are you still committed? I'm going to be wrapping up in prayer. Um, I will also mention, this is heavy stuff. Like I said, it's not an easy text, right? And um, take it with you as you go. I get how Sundays can be. It's a day of rest, but oftentimes it doesn't mean there's much rest involved. And Monday comes soon enough, and, and oftentimes the message can stop here. I know how that goes. But I want to challenge you to bring it out with you and to wrestle through it and to think about these two questions. If you need prayer, we all need prayer, but if you need specific prayer this morning, there's going to be people right over there in purple lanyards um, by the prayer sign that would love to pray for you this morning. As we close, let's pray. God, we... uh, We thank you um, 
that you know what's going on. You know um, all the, the stuff that we bring in, the baggage, the pain that we, many of us are going through right here, God. You know. And I thank you for that, God. And I am sorry for not placing my trust in you like I should. And I pray today that you will walk with us, Emmanuel, that you will be with us, walk with us as we leave these doors, as we wrestle through these questions. God, we want to know you more. We want to see you more clearly. We want to more passionately, more boldly follow you, God. So give us clarity. Give us courage, God. Show your face to us. Um, And we thank you that you love us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.